Patrick Ahoy there. Nick Cage. And don't pretend like you don't know who I am. What do you see? We cut the chit-chat a-hole. All right, I'm a little tired, a little wired, and I think I deserve a little appreciation. Shame on you! I lost just a little bit of control there, but now everything's cool. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. The cling clang king of the rim ram room. For this week's discussion on a movie from 1995, part of this month's Nicolas Cage series, Leaving Las Vegas. Man, this is like the end of act two. Leaving Las Vegas. Lowest point of the movie. Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> so if our Nicolas Cage month series were a movie, this would be the act two low point. Yep. <laughs> but not in terms of a movie's artistic merit or success. <laughs> Just this one is a downer. I do not have my fiance's support on this movie. Oh, man. This is not what she had in mind when Kelly Ray suggested Nick Cage month. I'm telling you, she confused this and Honeymoon in Vegas, starring Nicolas Cage and Sarah <laughs> Jessica Parker, I think until five minutes into this movie. So had she seen Leaving Las Vegas? Nope. You know, I honestly don't know that I had either. Man. I didn't know that Elizabeth Shue got naked. Yeah, she got partially naked at mo like different times. I think if you assembled a figure of her like throughout the movie, you could say, well, I saw that part and that scene and her leg and that scene, and you can construct a model. It's an incredible performance because it feels very grounded, very real, and she is the perfect kind of counter casting for a woman of the night, street-walking hooker type. Yeah, is she the, the heart of gold Julia Roberts type? Maybe. I mean, they're both American sweethearts to me. She's like what dudes from Reseda aspire to, Allie with an eye. She's like the quintessential <laughs> girl from The View. About a million miles away from the Karate Kid. A million miles away. And she really is the lead character of this film. I agree. And thinking, I mean, he's she's not the showiest one, obviously, but this is her only Oscar-nominated performance and what she called at the time undoubtedly her best role. And Nicolas Cage, likewise, nominated for an Oscar. Nominated and won. And how did he, how did Nicolas Cage receive the Oscar? How did he receive it? With much jubilation and enthusiasm. This is only, what, five years out of Moonstruck? This is right before The Rock and Con Air. And he even says, you know, what would Disney think of that? In one of his fake screenwriter conversations on the phone with the phone upside down. And then he went to work <laughs> for Disney. So what happens in Leaving Las Vegas? <laughs> what happens? Um, acceptance, no redemption, uh, a little bit of alleviation of loneliness, uh, some tolerance, and a whole lot of what Kelly called grossness. Hmm. I think she's describing the feeling that she walked away with. Yeah, I think that Ben is a dude for sure. And as much as he wants love and acceptance and for someone to understand that what his journey is, is what he's going to do no matter what, no matter who gets it, comes into his life at this, you know, unfortunately late stage, he's still going to go to Vegas and be debaucherous and consort with hookers and drink in public and cause disturbances and get in fights and aggravate bikers and stuff bikers yeah that guy in the in the oh, pool in the hall bar? the girl with the terrible haircut who like was sucking on his ear just to piss her boyfriend off who accordingly headbutted <laughs> him in the face <laughs> right 
and then he gets kicked out of the bar. Yep, that was one of the many weird cameos. That was Julian Lennon, John Lennon's kid. Oh, really? Wait, the biker in the bar no, who headbutts <laughs> Nicholas Cage? The bartender who gives him the towel and says, oh. men's room's out back. Sorry, we're going to kick you out. Yeah, they get kicked out of everywhere. Yep. He gets kicked out of the bar. He gets kicked out of the first bar where he unsuccessfully picks up, tries to pick up on that woman. Yep, Valeria Galino. They get kicked out of the who? From Hot Shots, man. Come on. Okay. Maybe I shouldn't breathe so much, Terry. Ha <laughs> ha! So Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Does he do the floppy hand in this? Uh, I'm sure he does. He does floppy body. He's like pretty floppy in this movie. He's so great... You know, I remember from one of my first acting classes that a character who is drunk is trying to act like they're not drunk. So it's a very layered performance. You're like drunk, but pretending you're not. Interesting. And he does it really well, especially in the area of concentration. Like when Ben is lighting the match for Sarah uh -huh. when they're out to dinner. Like at first glance, you'd think he's just doing it with care because he's interested in this woman. And he's very present in the moment. But then you realize that it's taking every bit of concentration that he has in his completely drunk state. That sort of wide-eyed laser focus. So laser focused because that's how you have to be when you're drunk. If you're trying to do something like that requires precision, like lighting a match and holding it steady enough for someone to light a cigarette. Yeah, but not just that. He did the matchbook single hand, fold the match over, strike it while drunk. That's a skill unto itself. I learned that skill. It doesn't always work particularly well. You have to have good quality matches. I also did the thing like Cobra, where you have the matches, the strike anywhere matches, where you don't even need the strip, and you can flick your thumbnail across it and strike the match. And I did that with great success during my smoking years until a little piece of the match head got lodged under my fingernail after it ignited. That was fun. <gasps> Yeah, you, oh. you stop doing tricks like that when you have mishaps. Tell me you were trying to light a cigarette for a beautiful young woman or something. <laughs> no, I think that was in Mike Parra's alleyway apartment, practicing with matches <laughs> over and over again. I'm pretty sure, no. I got a nice blister, and that was the last time I messed with Strike Anywhere matches. Thankfully, I am far from that dude. I barely even drink. Yeah, and when you do, you get all red in the face. Yeah, that's why I don't do it. I sweat enough as it is. Plus, I can be designated driver for everybody. So have you ever gotten drunk where you've like flopped flopped around? Oh, yeah. I start to get weird. Like I start to to act weird and I don't have control of my body. And I probably do more of the Ben Sanderson extreme concentration thing. It's like, uh oh, this is messy. I have to be careful now. And careful is not conducive <laughs> to fun. Well, and this is where they say, this is where the wives tale comes into play, that drinking and some other social enhancements, I don't know, uh, reveal or amplify your, your truest self, right? And if that's the case for Ben Sanderson, then he's a really sweet, gentle guy. Yeah, he's in that way, he's likable, weirdly likable, right? Like, obviously, he's a dude without restrictions or with certainly without care of consequences. So he's all like hookers and great ass and all that stuff. But I think he's still likable because he probably just because he's so gentle. He's like, he is good, good guy, doofy Ben. So let me tell you, leaving Las Vegas kind of messed me up. <laughs> I think that's kind of the point. Why did you want to watch this movie? Because it, it has an undeniable place in Nicolas Cage's body of work. You can't ignore the one because it's hard or because it's not necessarily pleasant. This is the one he won the Oscar for. It's largely why he's Nicolas Cage. And then he decided he wanted to do action-y stuff. And we're like, everyone was like, we love it. 
But I don't know that that would have been possible necessarily. I mean, he was already under Bruckheimer's wing and cast for The Rock, but he went on to have, you know, a pretty substantial action career in the 90s in particular. And I don't know that any of it would have been possible. This set the stage for his acting ability and how it translates to popular fare. This is the one where the Nicolas Cage ticks all make sense. If he does the floppy hand or they're like, <laughs> and like all the freakouts and stuff, it kind of fits more <laughs> securely in the Ben character than anywhere else, which is why Matchstick Men, you know, much later than this felt like a cheat to me. It's like he's doing the, the Ben Sanderson thing, except he's not drunk, except he's got, what does he have? Tourette's? Yeah. Leaving Las Vegas is the most immoral movie I've ever seen immoral? in my life. Immoral? Uh, this is also his weirdest, frizziest, blondest, baldingest Nicolas Cage. I mean, he had to have had plugs, right? Because his hair is thick and wavy and dark. Oh, after, in I'm sure. Weight. But no, this is Nicolas Cage at barest essence. Hopefully, I mean, I know that he did get drunk. I know that he did do a lot of research. Uh, the casino scene where he freaks out and knocks over the table. I'm not sure if that was filmed in a casino, but I do know that he was actually drunk for that scene. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and you know, a couple where other he times. freaks out and it's like, I'm his father. Yeah, for some reason. And it doesn't track either because, you know, she says something that the the hostess or whatever sort of innocuously and he's like what what and then starts yelling i'm his father and and like tears stuff apart and looks good visually yeah. i don't know why they why they kept the sound in it because kelly was like what just happened and i was like i don't know he was his father <laughs> he was just <laughs> he was just a drunkard who was triggered and i thought it was such an interesting choice to choose like that security camera angle yeah and let the whole scene play out and wide in a single Where you shot. just kind of, yeah, it like enabled me to somehow view it objectively. And I kind of needed that in that moment. Like, I think if we were all up in his business during his freakout, it would just be too much. Already at this point, like, it's pretty heavy, right? But in this moment, they're having fun. And you, like, are kind of maybe holding out a little bit of hope that, like, maybe there's something here. Maybe he could turn it around. Maybe they can make it. Nope. And in that moment, <laughs> they're like, nope. No. In fact, it seems like any time you're allowed to get a sense of their romance and have a little bit of hope, one of them screws it up. You know, like the earring scene, I, I could barely watch it. Why? Because I know what's coming and he gives her the earring and it's a sweet moment and she's so happy and he makes the comment after she says, you know, I think innocently enough I'll wear it tonight and... The, ugh, it's it's and then you can see her face fall and she's really sad and it's not like they're intimate weird little in her apartment being sad together kind of thing it's like you can tell you can watch her smile crumble in public and the dude notices and he's like she you can tell she really wants you to stay pretty heartbreaking in mm -hmm. that way but i don't think we ever have a wonderful exchange that doesn't land with a thud at some point mm. Yeah, it's like dueling gentleness, like they have their really sweet and tender moments, but they always they don't always line up. <sighs> and I think that a big part of what makes them likable is their honesty. Even if the truth is ugly, if you're at least honest and in touch with it, there's something, I don't know, honorable about that or something that makes you like or trust a person when they're like that. And there were two unfailingly honest moments with them, you know, hit him right off the top where he's like, she thinks maybe that he's joking, but he's like, I came to Las Vegas to drink myself to death. And he never wavers from that commitment. Yep. Even her when she's like, I think she loves him in her own way, but she also says pretty early on, I need you. 
I'm just using you because I need you. And she's at least in touch with this very sad truth about their relationship. So is her personality, Sarah's personality, is she reliant on men? Like the Yuri thing, she seems to acknowledge, and he's not just abusing her. Yuri is the slimiest, grossest dude ever. Like, I I don't know Julian Sands from too many other movies, but he's so thoroughly nasty in this movie. And Ben, (laughs) by contrast, is so gentle. But it's not like he's, she's like, please, Yuri, don't cut me again. She's like, here's the knife. If you're going to do it, do it. Because even though she kind of hesitates when he says we belong together, I think in a way she needed him for whatever reason, as much as she tried to get away from him. I don't pretend to understand the dynamic of of pimps and, and prostitutes, I guess. But is she reliant on Ben in that same way? Like, it's obviously destructive, and she knows. It's kind of like being with a dude in prison, because you know that there's only so much they can do. Do you think she went with Ben because she critically assessed him and is like, you're pretty drunk, and I guess if you're shady or start to hit me or something, I could probably get away or at least, or overpower you. You know, like, <laughs> I, I don't think Ben is a threat to her. I think that's a controllable situation that gives yeah. her, you know, I'm tired of being alone. I'm tired of being lonely. Yes thing that she's trying right. to and and so that doesn't speak to idealized love but it's a particular comfort and acceptance of her that she desires the filmmakers go to great pains to just show how utterly and profoundly alone she is i mean there's kind of no town more lonely than vegas in some ways right especially if if you live there um and i think she needs yuri because he's pretty much the only Thing that she has. I mean, you can say, Lo, oh, he accepts her for exactly what she is without judgment. She doesn't quite do the same because ultimately she comes to express her desire for him to get better and that drives them apart or whatever. But what is this movie feeding? Is it like, wow, Nicolas Cage wholeheartedly committed or what are we supposed to hang on to in this movie? Is it just that tenuous well, love and acceptance? At least something that's come up in this discussion is that love is reciprocal and also neutral in a way where it can take on lots of shapes, some more unhealthy than others. She is profoundly lonely and finds love in these kind of twisted, mutated ways. And there's something really important about her being able to take care of Ben, buy him gifts, you know, take him on trips, show him a good time. Like she needs to be able to express her love as much as she needs to be loved. And he's this receptive, very malleable object. Yeah, it's not just just a warm body, though. He says exactly the thing she needs to hear. I'm a drunk. You're a hooker. She looks at him all sharply like, here it comes, right? And he says, I want you to know I'm a person totally at peace with this. Not to say I'm indifferent or I don't care. I do. It's just I trust and accept your judgment. And probably no one had ever said that to her, ever. She looks at her life pretty neutrally, pretty uncritically and pretty simply. Like, do you believe her when she says, my life's pretty good? I think, no, I think she definitely wants to think that thing. You believe that she believes it? She got out of L.A. It's all she did. Maybe to make more money, like Yuri says, but she's still in Yuri's clutches at that moment. And indeed gets her ass kicked because she hangs out with him all night. Maybe she thinks that she's gotten to a point where she can be a higher class escort and companion because he doesn't expect sex from her that night. But I mean, also, he charmed her. 
she finds him when she goes i go looking for him i like went out last night looking for him and she finds him sitting on a bench not drinking a beer or because there's no open container law but drinking a full-blown martini <laughs> on las vegas boulevard <laughs> that's charming that's like debonair <laughs> Where he got the martini glass, I mean, and how he walked to that bench, that street bench or bus bench without spilling it is kind of beyond me. It's like, really? The martinis, what he's going to go with? Not like the hurricane or something from Harrah's, like the giant six foot drink. Like how long would it, would that martini even make a dent? Would that flask that she got him hold enough to, is that like the emergency stash when you're like on a plane or something? How long would that last him even if he's chugging directly out of the vodka bottle? So I've seen this movie lots of times. And you asked me, why? why did we... Right, that's exactly what Kelly Ray would say. This is like the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. This is a post-breakup, mid-90s, total, like, in, uh, in the depths of despair kind of movie. Where I watch this movie several times, and I'm like, maybe this is what my life will be. Maybe if I can never find anyone again, and I have zero direction, I could just move out to Las Vegas and drink myself to death, or eat myself to death, or drug myself to death, and maybe someone... It's like, I could date a hooker and, and confuse their, you know, affections that they're getting paid for as love. Or whatever. This is like the serious despairing movie. If you watch this one over and over again, it's because you're looking for the last shred of hope in an otherwise pretty bleak situation. Oh my God. And I haven't seen this movie in about uh, at least 10 years. But I feel like, obviously, she's putting herself in dangerous situations. But I wondered, for you going in cold or... Kelly, who hasn't really spoken about this movie, we didn't talk about it really at all. Um, if you know that when, once those do those college dudes in the football jerseys roll up on her and in, in like on one of the walkways, you knew immediately that was trouble, right? I underestimated how much trouble it turned out to be. And apparently she did too. Uh, it just it seems so obvious to me. Maybe it comes, she, I guess she knows more about safety being a prostitute than I do. But I was like, you know, you can pick and choose. And it seems like the businessman or whatever in the convention sitting alone at the bar in a suit might be a better option than the dudes who like roll up with like a boombox. I mean, it's possible that she was just hell bent on destructive behavior because wasn't, they were separated at that point, right? Yep. That was immediately following because he asks her what happened when she still bears the scars right. afterwards in the final scene. <clears throat> Man, that was the second act. That was the end of act two for that movie. Ugh. And it's terrible and horrible. I mean, if that movie, if this bleak movie could get any harder to watch. Let's just throw in gang rape by like punk ass college kids. I mean, they don't shy away from anything, which is why I feel like this is such an immoral how many immoralities can we fit into this movie? Movie We got like gang rape and murder. We've got drunkenness and debauchery and prostitution. And we also have like just general hate and disdain, you know, from the quote unquote decent people in this movie. Yeah. I mean, the, her getting beaten up leads to her eviction, which is the least supportive thing that that lady could possibly do. Right. And poor Nikki or whatever, who's all like henpecked. <laughs> Right. Why did he even come to the door? She could have definitely. Was she like looking for backup? Maybe. And he was all sorry. He was like all apologetic. And you really think, oh, oh man, when she turns on the charm, 
like, oh, he's just my friend. Like, come on, Ben. You know, and she's like trying to play it off. He's clutching an uncapped bottle of Jack, for God's sake. Asleep on the, asleep outside the gate. And when she turns on the charm for the lady at the motel in the desert, like you kind of think that she might, you know, be able to turn it around. And then you just get this two-faced, heartbreaking rejection. Yeah. I get it as a proprietor, as a as a landlord, like you don't want drama. But man, talk about a perspective from the other side. I don't know that that lady was wrong because they were maybe destructive and breaking stuff. And well, they were also getting like having raunchy foreplay out on the patio. Yeah. And maybe that lady had like a husband or something who saw all that nonsense and was like, ooh, and she got all pissed. And yeah, she had her own Nikki back there somewhere who she didn't want exposed to that salacious element. <laughs> but very in line with Sarah's character at the very top, which we should talk about the um, the therapy device. But at the very top and what I assume was a therapy setting, she's like, I become their fantasy. It's like I have a gift. I'm paraphrasing. But in that moment, I feel like Sarah is fulfilling every fantasy Ben could possibly have at this end of life stage that he's in. The uh, therapy stuff is an interesting device. We're assuming she speaks to a therapist and the studio didn't want Mike Figgis, the director, to use those elements in the movie, wanted to keep it with the central characters. But I think it's a great segue, a great transition within the movie. Uh, it gives us a little a bit of the stuff that's coming out of her head. It's like, wait, she is the one in control. She's the lady of the night with the false confidence that breaks down where she plays the dudes and plays the game, but then comes and gives all her money to Yuri or comes home to be, you know, hurt by Ben with another prostitute. But turns out it wasn't a therapist, and it wasn't anyone else. It was screen, hair, makeup, and wardrobe tests that Elizabeth Shue did that they recorded that he decided to include as a narrative device. No way. They didn't shoot any of it in principle? I don't think so. And it works so well that it actually ends the movie. Wow. And it probably added to its really raw element. It feels raw. It feels natural. It feels exploratory. You can't really tell for her because she's kind of got the facade on when she has the bright red lipstick and she's doing the hustle thing, you know? And you can see the hurt on her face register when he says terrible things to her or she's hurt because of situations she can't control because she can't talk him out of drinking. But I think there in trying to, she's got that fakeness, that sort of, you know, trying to convince other people that what she's doing is justified. You know, I know I shouldn't look mm. for him, but but I do. I, I should. I, I, you're right. I shouldn't see him again, but I look for him. And she has kind of that the slightly ashamed, downcast eyes. And therein are some really heavy revelations just about her character. And she gets emotional and she breaks down like you would. I mean, in my mind, it's firmly she's speaking to a therapist and does so on a consistent basis, which I'm not sure is in line with the Sarah character, but I think works marvelously to showcase not only her impenetrable thoughts or her thought process, but also just to demonstrate Elizabeth shoes acting range interesting i thought about it too like if therapy made sense for the sarah character not only is there a stigma barrier to getting therapy but there's also a financial barrier like it's not cheap for people who need it and who are like down and out it's very it's really difficult to get the help you need but the sarah character had a nice apartment well decorated appointed um she had khakis 
you know, yeah, in her off days, she's like wearing like loose fitting, comfy clothing. Her hair is up in a French twist, like ladylike. And she cares for Ben in a respectful way. She buys him clothes. I mean, I'm not sure about the, the loud orange shirt. But she buys him a flask like she's got taste. I don't know. Like cooks him rice. There's something <laughs> he cooks him white rice, which he doesn't eat because he's incapable of eating any food in this movie. So I felt like, OK, the Sarah character in some ways has it together and has compartmentalized her profession in a way that allows her to have an otherwise kind of normal life. So, yeah, she could probably afford therapy. She might even do it because it's something that she knows she needs or that's good for her. Do you think that it's a deference to Yuri and the stronger influences in her life that have caused her to not kind of rock the boat too much? I mean, she looks like a realtor, right, in her, like, carefully staged apartment and everything. And she looks like she could be put together, but she's willing to accept lesser than. Like, he's not a viable partner for anyone. Ben is in trouble and he's on his way out the door. And that's very clear. I agree. You can't really expect anything else from the movie. But she still, despite all of her best intentions, thinks she can or should save him. To be in the situation that she's in and subjecting herself to the dudes of Las Vegas, it requires something, some level of damage and hurt that she doesn't have the will to think around. I guess mm. it's just it is what it is. And mm -hmm. if it's marginally better then oh, I hope things are really turning around for me. I mean, in a movie about addiction, I guess it's appropriate to talk about serenity. But the basis of serenity is accepting the things that you can't change and having the courage to change the things that you can. And maybe Sarah is someone who has accepted certain aspects of her life and is just focusing on changing or improving the parts that she that are actually kind of within her control. Man. So last question. Why is this movie called Leaving Las Vegas? Because because I don't know if the Cheryl Crow song came first, but maybe that is the unattainable dream. Leaving Las Vegas is the, the most they can expect is a weekend getaway that goes just as badly as any of their time in the city. It's another filmmaker trick where they're like, how about we plant a little seed of hope that they're going to get out of this because they're yep. not. But we have <laughs> one way or another. We've left this Las Vegas behind. Gone are the days of knocking over people's tubs full of coins. Uh, this is Dad's Vegas back in the day where he's like, we can get some dinner, $2.99, prime rib. <laughs> I'm like, that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Not even on Fremont. Yep. That was the Vegas that we grew up in or, you know, we grew up visiting. That we were exposed to for sure. A hundred percent. So near was there a movie that barreled more towards such an unpleasant conclusion, but it was an inevitability. You don't have to like leaving Las Vegas or its message or the way it le the way that you feel after watching it where you just like want to go take a shower <laughs> but i would i would definitely have to say that leaving las vegas succeeds on its own kind of merits so as messed up as jacked up as i was after seeing this movie i feel like it it led to a i guess pretty diverse discussion and i don't know it was good 
very chewy. It's very something for Nicolas Cage and the unlikely Elizabeth Shue to sink their teeth into. I mean, they wholeheartedly embraced their roles and went for it. I mean, she shattered that Karate Kid image pretty much right off the bat. And he was just in the depths, man. You know what's scary? You know how old Nicolas Cage was in this movie? Oh, great. Younger than you? Ben Sanderson looks 55 years old. Nicolas Cage, 30 years old in this movie. Wow. There's some level of love and acceptance and tolerance in this movie, but we have to go through a lot of horrible things to get there. But a necessary inclusion for Nicolas Cage Month, I'm going to give it an all right rating because there are definitely great things about leaving Las Vegas. And for a time and a point in my life, I watched it kind of a lot and then not really a whole lot when, you know, when things do get better, as they do for everyone except Ben and Sarah. Maybe this one is a red flag if you watch it continuously, like every Thanksgiving, if it's your favorite movie. This is not a movie about love. This movie is about the despair of addiction and how it kind of makes that missed opportunity for love all the more sad. So on that happy note, I can appreciate Leaving Las Vegas as a movie and as a necessary inclusion for this month's series, Nicolas Cage Month on Or Whatever Movies. Please subscribe to our podcast. Support us on Patreon. Follow us on social media at orwhatevermovies.com and get in touch with us at orwhatevermovies at gmail.com 818-835-0473. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.